Father, it seems very good and right to pause in prayer now before you, our holy God. Lord, we thank you that you are our God, holy, holy, holy. We have no right on our own, no ability on our own to come before your presence and to sing and ascribe greatness to your name, except of the the merits of Jesus Christ, your son. And so, Lord, we come to you because of him and in him and ask now, God, that you'd help us to give attention to your word. All of us, God, myself included, help us all to sit under the word and to submit to what we see here tonight. God, I do pray for those who are in Christ this evening to be greatly encouraged by the grace that has been shown them by your son through your spirit. God, I also pray for those who are not in Christ this evening. Maybe there are those who are visiting who are not Christians here tonight, and I pray, God, that you would help them to see the glories of the gospel and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Lord, would you receive all of the glory for our time together tonight and help us, Lord, to be edified and built up in our faith at the same time we ask all of this, commending ourselves to you in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's really great to be here with you tonight. It's been a little while since I've been here. Last time I was here uh, was several years ago, and I just want to let you know that it is a thrill to be back here tonight at Grace Church of the Valley. Super thankful for the invitation from Pastor Scott. I don't know if you might know, and I don't know how much has been said, but uh, Pastor Scott was my pastor back down in Los Angeles when my wife, Julie, who's down in the second row next to Patty, and uh, two of our five kids, uh, when they were uh, shepherding a church down in Los Angeles, we were sitting under their ministry I think newly married at the time, right? And, and just starting our family. And I got to tell you, man, what you have experienced and blessed by with Pastor Scott's ministry of the word here is what we recall very sweetly of our time down there. And God has used, Scott, your ministry in my life and has extended your reach up into the Bay Area. I'm thankful for your input in my life. I don't know if you know this. I actually went and did my doctoral program uh, at the same place you did, largely at the basis of your counsel to me. And I really appreciate that. That has been so helpful to me and so helpful to our people. And so praise the Lord for that. And, uh, and I want you to turn your Bibles tonight to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be talking about the unlikely convert, a man named Nicodemus. Super familiar passage to probably most of you. But what I want us to see tonight, maybe again, maybe for the first time, is what it means to be born again by the Spirit of the living God and what it means to have that new birth secured by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of our time together this evening is to look at this unlikely convert Nicodemus and and see what it means to be born again by the spirit of the living God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, this passage is great. So check it out. And in John chapter three, we're gonna read verses one through eight to crack it open and see the call, first of all, to be born again, to be born again. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water 
and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. This section is all about the call to be born again. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God, to see the display of God's glory in heaven with him for eternity. This doctrine of being born again is what theologians call the doctrine of regeneration. And it's this right here, this passage is kind of the, the sin qua non, the, the locus classicus text on regeneration, on what it means to be born again. So anytime we talk about someone coming to Christ and being given the gift of new life, this is a seminal passage. But before we dive into the text, I want to set some context for you really fast because I think it's helpful as we move into this narrative, this discussion between Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus. If you were to look back in chapter 2, you'd see the previous context is having uh, an exposure by people um, of, the, of the, the gospel reader, of people who are seeing the signs in, in John chapter 2, verse 23, that Jesus is doing, and they're, quote unquote, believing in his name because of the signs that he's doing. Now, this is highlighting in the gospel of John early on the inadequacy of the kind of faith that's based simply on wanting to see Jesus perform miracles, period. Tons of people back then we're watching Jesus do his miracles and effectively saying, I follow Jesus. Do you? I mean, look at all of his miracles. I'm sticking around to see what he's going to do next. And so they believed in and followed him. As for Jesus, he didn't trust those kinds of followers. Look at verse 24 of John chapter 2. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus didn't trust these kinds of people who had this kind of faith. Why? Brothers and sisters, because they wanted Jesus for his miracles, not for his message. And there's a world of difference in that. They wanted a sign that would thrill them when what they needed was a savior who would rescue them. They wanted a show of Christianity. They didn't want the substance of Christianity. They, this happens, by the way, all the time in, in churches, maybe all around here, certainly up from where I'm at in the Bay Area, where people show up to church. They make a profession of Christianity, and the reason why is because they come to church and they want to show. They want to be thrilled and what they see, rather than showing up to hear the word of God proclaimed, to sing the gospel of God in exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. These kinds of believers, quote unquote, want to have Jesus ooh and awe them. They don't want to know about Jesus dying to save them. Does any of this sound familiar? I don't know any of you, I don't know why any of you are here tonight. But if you're visiting here tonight, maybe that's some of your context. Maybe this context is yours. But if you know why Jesus in the Gospel of John did all of his miraculous signs, you know that he did them all for one reason. 
And that reason is listed in the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, verse 31, that says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, but these that are written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the reason for the signs is for the purpose of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as God's Son that leads to everlasting life. So that's the context, which is exactly why you see Nicodemus showing up. He shows up as maybe an example of someone in this place in life, seeing the signs and wondering about the message. And so what we're going to see here by way of organization of this whole passage tonight is Jesus' admonition regarding the new birth in verses 1 through 3. We're going to see his explanation of the new birth in verses 4 through 8. So in this section, we're going to see the admonition regarding the new birth in verses 1 through 3, and then the explanation of the new birth in verses 4 through 8. Let's look first at the admonition in verses 1 through 3. Here's this man, Nicodemus. And that's in contrast, by the way, to the woman that will be coming up in John chapter 4. And he approaches him by night, maybe because he's a little bit um, suspect of of making a public appearance with Christ. We don't know. We do know that he's a Pharisee. Look at verse 1. And as he's a Pharisee, he's a religious leader who's committed to keeping the law fastidiously. But look at this. He's also a ruler of the Jews, verse 1. In fact, in verse 10, Jesus says that Nicodemus is the teacher in Israel, implying that this is the main teacher, the main leader in all of the nation of Israel. And on top of that, extra biblical history tells us from reliable sources that Nicodemus was maybe one of the most wealthy people in all of Israel. So look, check this out. This is relevant in my area. This is one of the most influential religious, economic, and cultural elites of his day. You hear the word elite tossed around a lot these days, right? Like, oh, they're part of the elite. Well, this is Nicodemus. These kinds of people don't usually come to Christ, right? They're very unlikely to convert. This is like Bill Gates, or this is like Elon Musk. By the way, I had, a, I had dinner last night with a, a group of guys, and one of them actually works at Tesla in Fremont and in the main building there, the main campus, and he said that they have a prayer meeting for Tesla inside the building, and uh, there's a, a high-ranking vice president who's a Christian and actually spends a lot of time with Musk and has shared the gospel with him. It's pretty cool to hear about how the gospel runs all the way up to the top of some of these elite people in our country today. But if you put together a guy like that along with the religious elitism too, now you see who Nicodemus was. And these people aren't supposed to become Christians, right? Not according to them. Nicodemus starts off the conversation by saying in verse 2, Rabbi, which is a sign of respect by the way, um, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Bingo, he got it exactly right. Nicodemus had seen the signs of John 2, But would he just want the signs that Jesus performed or would he want to know what Jesus' message was about? I mean, Nicodemus starts the conversation somewhat innocuous, right? But what does Jesus do? I mean, immediately Jesus goes right to the point with Nicodemus. He goes for the jugular right out of the gate. It's almost like it's a little bit of a non sequitur, isn't it? In verses 2 down to verse 3, Jesus just starts out by saying, unless one is born of the kingdom, or unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom 
of God. And so we see here Jesus getting right to the point with this elite leader, with this unlikely person to convert. And by the way, that admonition has some urgency to it. You either are born again or you perish. And that's a word for Nicodemus. That's a word for anyone who is hearing this message tonight. It's a shocking introduction that begs for clarification. And Nicodemus is actually taking the conversation there in verse 4. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? So he asks Jesus a response question that makes sense, right? How can you be born again? And Jesus begins his explanation in verses 4 through 8 along two lines. First, the line from Scripture in verses 5 and 6. And then the line, a line of reasoning from nature in verses 7 and 8. So when he begins his explanation in 4 through 8, he moves first with an explanation from the Scripture. And he says in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now look, I don't know if you've studied through the, the Gospel of John on your own. Maybe you've led a small group in it. Maybe you've taught a children's Sunday school class on it. Maybe you've preached on this before. Everyone knows, if you've worked in this in any detail, that um, the interpretation of what this means right here is mission critical. And you can go sideways on this in some pretty unhelpful directions. But it seems pretty evident if you just pay attention to the fact that um, Nicodemus knows his Bible really well, and Jesus is using the scripture here, referencing the scripture here really well, that Jesus is referencing very obviously the prophet Ezekiel. So turn back in your Old Testament to Ezekiel. Yeah, that's right. We're going to Ezekiel during Summerfest. I don't know when the last time you went to Ezekiel was. Maybe it was recently. But Ezekiel, this is the passage I actually did my THM thesis on down at Masters. Um, and so I love, love, love this passage in through here. This is a new covenant context by God to the people of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. By extension to the people of God in the new covenant, which includes the Gentiles by being grafted in. So, Ezekiel 36 Look at verse 25. We'll pick up right in the grammatical heart of this new covenant context. Watch for the images here. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, Ezekiel 36, verse 25, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. There is the water image right there in verse 25, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There are the com combined factors of the water, which is here referencing the cleansing of God's people from their sin, from their uncleanness, from their idolatry. And then here is also the combined picture of the spirit being placed within the hearts of God's people that will enable them to obey the Lord from the heart. So now come back over to John chapter 3. So John is showing that Jesus has taken Nicodemus to Ezekiel 36 to show what being born again is. It's being cleansed from your sin by God. It's being also having God placing his spirit within you, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the center of that new covenant promise is exactly where Jesus takes Nicodemus. And that's the definition, the explanation from Scripture of what the new birth is, what it means to be born again. Look, 
Jesus is saying, and God from his word is saying tonight, that for you to be born again, in order to go to heaven, in order to see God's kingdom, you must have God cleanse you from all of your sin, from all of your idolatry. In order to go to heaven, in order to see God's kingdom, you must have God place his spirit within you, giving you new spiritual life, new life. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed this in Ezekiel 36 and here again that this is not work that you can do. This is the work that God does. All your wealth can't buy it, just like Nicodemus. All your religiosity can't earn it, just like Nicodemus. All your influence can't secure it, just like Nicodemus. And all your effort can never attain seeing the kingdom of God. God must cleanse you. God must dwell within you or you will perish. This is Jesus' first explanation of what the new birth is. The second explanation is from nature with the wind in verses 7 and 8. So Jesus says to Nicodemus after that, don't marvel that I said to you, you have to be born again. Don't marvel at that. That's not a surprise. It's straight in the Bible. You should know that, Nicodemus. And then this reference to the wind blowing wherever it wishes and hearing its sound and not knowing where it comes from or where it goes being synonymous with or parallel to everyone who is born of the Spirit. So this is an image here of the wind blowing wherever it wants to blow. Now, the Greek word for wind is the same word for spirit in that language. And so there is a a bit of a wordplay here in verse 8 with the wind and the spirit blowing where it wishes. It symbolizes here that God's spirit sovereignly works in whoever's life he wants to work in. God sends the spirit to indwell whomever it pleases him to send it to and, and to send him to. This is the majesty and this is the mystery of regeneration. That it's not the work of man. You must be born again by the Spirit and you can't do it. Only the sovereign power of the Spirit can accomplish this. And so here's what I want to say to you tonight. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be looking at this and going, why me? Why me? I mean, why did God have me be the person who has the spirit implanted within him and taking up residence within me. Why me? Why me in light of all the idolatrous pursuits that we just, I mean, it was so sweet. Megan, whoever you are, thank you uh, for wherever you are. Thank you for sharing that testimony. I was just so thankful to hear. Yes, dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to respond to God. And God has to cleanse us or else we perish. It just causes, I think, Hearing that testimony by Megan, seeing the work of the Spirit that's sovereign, I can't do anything about it, Uh, God has to do the work or I perish, makes me just so deeply thankful, listen, to serve God. Because um, I was saved by grace. And so it, it drives me, not just to my knees in thankfulness, but it drives me in service to my King. Nicodemus, however, he's totally stunned in verse 9. Why? Because he's been trained his whole life, his whole life, that if you live by the law, you could earn your way to heaven, you could earn your way into God's kingdom. That's been the currency that he's been operating in. And here's Jesus saying that we're totally incapable of entering into heaven on our own unless God cleanses us and indwells us by his spirit. So Nicodemus is right in verse 9 to say, wait a minute, time out, how could these things be? 
So Jesus, from the admonition of verses 1 through 3, moves from his explanation in verses 4 through 8 to now this call to believe in Christ for everlasting life. So verses 1 through 8, you must be born again. Verses 10 through 21 now, where Jesus proclaims the good news about himself to believe in him and live. So this portion of the dialogue in verses 10 through 21, let me read that section for you, breaks up into three parts. One, there's an illustration of the cross of Christ in verses 9 through 15. Second, there's the invitation to believe in Christ in verses 16 through 18. And then there's an implication of living for Christ in verses 19 through 21. Let me read verse 9 and following. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. I think we there is speaking of him along with the Father And we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things, things that originate in the heavens? And no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here is in this long part of the dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus in 9 through the end of uh, of verse 21, this illustration of the cross of Christ right at the end of that paragraph. Jesus takes Nicodemus back to the Old Testament again, this time back toward the beginning to Numbers chapter 21 with people who are dying among the people of Israel because of serpents that had been sent in as a bit of a plague invading their camp because of their sin. People in Numbers 21 are literally dying and they cry out to the Lord, please, God, take away the serpents from us so that we don't die. It's a life and death situation here. And God responds to the people through Moses and says in Numbers 21, Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and everyone who is dying, when they look at the serpent, in faith, will live. God provided the way of salvation in that moment when they cried out to him, from death. And all the people had to do was to look to the serpent that up on the pole and live. No matter how horribly they were bitten, no matter how deadly the disease, the opportunity for salvation back in Numbers 21 was there if they would but look and live, and live because of God's provision of salvation. The bronze serpent in Numbers 21 is a picture Jesus says in verses 14 and 15 of Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross. By the way, when it says there in verse 14, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That speaks to both his humiliation of being crucified on the cross, but also his exaltation as well because he's accomplishing our salvation. And look, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This parallel is super powerful. Why? Because anyone who desires to have God cause them to be born again, to be saved from death, rescued from their sin, has but to look at the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and they will live. This is the illustration of the cross of Christ And 
as Jesus continues on in verses 16 through 18, we see the invitation to believe in Christ made more explicit. Look at this. You know verse 16, but I'm going to read down to verse 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see an invitation by Christ here to believe in him and live. And look, I, I need to tell you that um, the, the invitation to live and the drive to live sometimes is forgotten about by those of us who are healthy and strong. But if there's one thing the pastoral ministry teaches you, it's that life is super fragile, and it can change in a hurry. We had a, a person at the church who just experienced literally a, a, a sudden cardiac death, is what they called it, where they thought that he had passed away, and then he actually didn't, but he came back to life, and the prizing of life in that moment was extraordinary. Everyone was literally, doctors included, rejoicing at the expression, the signs of life. And what applies in that illustration physically certainly applies even more here spiritually. The most degraded and miserable sinner who looks to Jesus Christ will be saved. Do you believe that about the people in your life who don't know Christ? Is there anybody in your life right now that's coming into your mind that you think, look, I've shared the gospel before that person. My family member, I've shared it with them. I... I'm not going there again. Hmm. Or do you know the lifestyle that they've chosen to live? I mean, I'm from the Bay Area, right? Do you know the lifestyle they've chosen to live? There's no way they're coming to Christ. Hmm. I just want you to be aware that this, is a, this invitation to believe in Christ is yours if you don't know him savingly tonight. But I want those of you who do know Christ tonight to be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, time out. Maybe it's been a while since I've really thought about and prayed about and pursued this unbelieving family member, this unbelieving coworker, this unbelieving friend that God's placed in my life. This invitation to believe is based on God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved speaks of the greatest degree of love that could ever possibly be shown in all of human history. God so loved the world speaks of the greatest extent of love that could possibly be shown in history. People from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue from all over the world are loved by God as they turn to him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, speaking to the greatest gift that anyone could give to anyone else, that whoever believes in him speaks to the greatest offer that has ever been made, a free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus, the son. Will not, or that whoever believes in him will not perish, speaks to the greatest protection ever afforded. What's the worst thing that can happen to you in your life? In light of this invitation to live forever, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? I mean, can you not endure 10,000 troubles on the back of the fact that the worst thing you can do is live forever? This is not just the good news that saves. This is the good news that sanctifies 
And then we'll have everlasting life. Speaks to the greatest possession ever obtained. Nicodemus couldn't do anything to earn this new birth. He couldn't do anything to earn God's love. God's love was a foundation upon which Christ's invitation sounded forth to Nicodemus and to you and to me. And then there's this implication of living for Christ in verses 19 through 21. Look at verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. So there is the invitation in verses 16 through 18. Here comes now the implication of judgment in verse 19. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's the implication of living for Christ on the back of the invitation to be saved by Christ. This is the judgment for unbelief. So think about those unbelievers in your life. Not everyone's going to believe in Jesus. Jesus says so right here. Some will want nothing to do with him. Many are going to not want to walk in the light. They're going to way prefer darkness. Is that going to dampen your zeal for the Lord? Is that going to cause you to back away from the proclamation of this good news, the invitation that's issued here? Furthermore, for those who do walk in the light of this life, here is the note of repentance, by the way, at the very end of this narrative that complements the belief at the beginning of it. That people will eventually, who are in Christ, stand before him someday in glory, and there their life will indeed be attributed to God's will and work alone. There it is right at the very end. It will be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Even their works after they've been saved by grace through faith are because of God's grace. And so, from beginning to end, we will rejoice forever that our regeneration, our faith, and our life were all gifts of God. And so, salvation is from the Lord, right? And Nicodemus comes to Christ, right? Isn't that the, where does it say that in the passage? Does it say it anywhere? John 3 provides no response for Nicodemus. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, evidently, he didn't become a Christian maybe that night. We don't know. So what happened to him? Later in the Gospel of John, John chapter 7 states that Jesus was defended by Nicodemus before the entire religious body known as the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus stood up for Jesus. After Jesus died, Nicodemus worked with Joseph of Arimathea to make sure that Jesus' body was properly buried. John 19. In other words, by every account, it seems like the most elite person in the country, the person who seemed the most unreachable, the person who seemed, who, who like they wouldn't even care about who Christ is and his message, ends up becoming born again by God's sheer grace. Ends up placing his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. And he does prove to be the most unlikely convert at this point in the Gospel of John. So how about you? How about you? I mean, you've seen tonight what it means to be born again, right? You had it explained to you how to be saved from sin and death has been explained. If you're not a Christian here tonight, you must be born again to see God's kingdom to go to heaven.
You should look to him, be cleansed from your sin, be given new life forever with him. If you have any questions about any of that, if you're here tonight maybe at the invitation of someone else and you're not a Christian, man, we'd love to talk with you after the service. You can find me, Scott, any of the staff, contact the church office, do whatever it takes to make sure that you can follow up like Nicodemus here did with Jesus. But if you are a Christian, man, I'm just hoping that you love God more tonight for the love that he has shown you right in the heart of this passage. The Father is abounding in steadfast love for you. The Son demonstrated his love for you in the lifting of up of himself on the cross. The Spirit has been poured out within you in love by God the Father. And so you should come and rejoice in his great love. Look, I know for a fact whenever I do a wedding that this single word that means the most to people is, I love you. And God has demonstrated that in the giving of his son to you. And so we want to have you walk out tonight responding in kind. I love you too, God, and I'm going to follow you all the days of my life until I see you in glory.